Welcome to the Shidakama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Farai Mutundoro from Zimbabwe. Farai works for a, an NGO that focuses on environmental governance called Zela. Otherwise, he is a governance, democracy, and human rights policy expert with 10 years' experience in nonprofit sectors. He focuses on natural resource governance, transparency, accountability, and anti-corruption. He has been particularly interested in land policy issues. Farai, welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thank you so much for availing this opportunity to, to me. I'm with the African Institute for Environmental Law, which is a think tank I'm established by Zimbabwe Environmental Law Association. Thanks, Sheila. That's lovely. As governance, democracy, and human rights activists interested in resource governance, why is, from your point of view, transparency important? It's, again, thank, thanks so much for, 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 for that question, Sheila. So when we are dealing with natural resources, I think there's so much financial value with huge implications to the manner in which communities right across Africa live and interact with the environment, live and interact with their socio-economic, cultural, and economic rights. So transparency becomes very critical for them to have full disclosure on the impact of resource extraction on their day-to-day life. More importantly, it's very important for our oversight institutions to hold the executive accountable and corporate actors accountable we know for a fact that the extraction of resources has negative externalities with, with costs of often at times being shifted onto communities to bear the burden of extraction, be it of land, agriculture, be it of mining, and any other economic activity that is resource dependent. So transparency becomes a critical vehicle through which we hold accountable corporate actors, government, but also communicate the impact of our extraction onto communities and identify mitigation approaches. I would say, Sosina, over to you. Mm. So uh, that makes perfect sense because I mean, you, you see it as a, a vehicle to enable you to uh, foster accountability by shedding light on what is happening. But do I detect an assumption that the impacts will by nature be negative? Not only negative, uh, like I had said, I think there is also the positive externalities like generation of revenue, funds accruing to to government, to central government and local authorities. So with transparency, again, it gives us communities and other stakeholders an opportunity to know where this money is going to, towards and to which purposes. Uh, I think we are speaking to a sector which years for years seen unending corruption. So the only way then to to curb and mitigate corruption is through transparency and accountability. Once we know how much we are unlocking from resources, we can then know, for instance, how much we can put towards social, public social spending, healthy uh, education and other critical sectors to our economy. So there are positive gains from resource extraction. In order of fact, to, to grow the positive gains, transparency becomes an enabler so that resource extraction contribute directly towards sustainable development outcomes of communities and nation states in, in Africa. That's lovely. 
now we have this uh, ESG framework, which has become very much part of the public discourse in recent times. In your line of work, is uh, ESG frameworks, are they helpful or do they hinder your work? ESG frameworks, they, they are much of an enabler to, to our work. I think for, for, for years, the organization that birthed the Institute that I'm coordinating has been pushing forward the narrative on the respect of environmental, social, cultural, and economic rights of communities. And now comes uh, this apt framework, uh, the ESG, Environmental Social Governance. So in which way does it uh, help us? I think it gives a unique opportunity to engage corporate actors and hold them accountable because the investors are mindful that uh, extraction or investments are likely to trigger off huge implications onto the environment, labor issues as well as governance issues. So the best way to detect, to, to, to resolve that is through having a robust sound framework of ESG. But I think our position and my position on that is that ESG we need to do it very sincerely so that it doesn't become more corporate greenwashing and ticking boxes without the involvement of communities interacting with investments in Africa. So I think it's much of an enabler, but being an enabler, much as it is an enabler, I think we need to be mindful that at times with corporate actors and governments, it might be window dressing and a matter of ticking boxes. So it's indeed helpful, but there's more to do uh, by us and other actors on ESG, Sheila. Right. So you, you've quite rightly recognized that uh, there is an intersection between extractives and land resources. And so I, I wanted to get a sense from you of how transparency can ensure that matters pertaining to land use and land rights use are scrutinized, especially in your country, Zimbabwe, given the history of land access and lack thereof. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that. So, 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 with transparency in the land sector, was land is the mother of all resources. Land, uh, houses, mineral resources, and with this narrative around going towards a zero uh, carbon economy, again, there's increased pressure on land to access and control and use land. But it's a sector where there's opaqueness and politicization of these pristine resources. So with land transparency, I think communities are in the know-how that they need to be consulted through such frameworks like your free prior informed consent. They need to know their land rights. So without transparency, communities are not aware of the rights that they are accorded by the constitution and different legislative frameworks that exist, be it in Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and many other African countries. Without transparency, again, they are not aware that what are the trade-offs? Of course, they are being moved from one area going to the other area. But what are the trade-offs in return? What are the benefits that will accrue to local communities and nation states? So without without that understanding, Sheila, you, you see a scenario where communities, they do not trust corporate actors. And corporate actors, they need social license to operate so that their, their investments are binding on communities and there's respect for 
private property. But more importantly, uh, transparency in the land sector as land is highly intersected to uh, mineral resources, agricultural investments, and other critical resources is also critical in ensuring that we mitigate the impact of investment onto the environment where communities have a role to monitor environmental uh, environmental violations and reporting on environmental violations, reporting on the trade-offs that comes as a result of investment. So frameworks that allow for that transparency uh, in the land sector would include your environmental impact assessments, uh, they would include your social impact assessments. It's an opportunity for communities to be in the know-how. Uh, frameworks would also include mining contracts that communities should have access to so that they know the trade-offs that I indicated earlier on. So that's how uh, that's how uh, transparency plays a critical role in the land sector. But besides that, the, the very fact that communities need to have a secure, secure land rights that they can approach courts uh, fighting, let's say, investments that they feel that they are not in respect for, for, for human rights. That's, those are some of the frameworks allowing for transparency in the land sector, Sheila. Mm -hmm. So I, I like your reference to trade-offs. Let's spend a moment talking about that because you are recognizing that when we say to a community, we are going to develop a mine, we need to relocate you. They've, there's something there that they forfeit. And, and, and yeah. so the trade-off basically is between the thing they forfeit and the thing they gain by relocating yes. elsewhere. Talk to me about that. You know, what, you know, what, are, what is an ideal structure for ensuring that the, what we uh, trade uh, is equal to the value we gain? Thank you so sense. much. Yeah. Yeah, it does make perfect sense. So, so we, we, the, the more you look at it, uh, people are preoccupied with land because land unlocks livelihoods or alternatives for them. They can use land to, to, to make an extra dollar, two dollars, or ten dollars. It's tied to their livelihood. So, should they trade off farming as an economic activity? They still need to feed their families. They still need to see their life progress in a very positive way to ensure that they can afford more. When their household income was $20, they need to see the household income growing from $20 to $200 as a result of the trade trade-offs. But I think the, 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 the current picture has been that of communities being pushed towards the margins of poverty when they lose their access to an enabler that ensure that they would get five, twenty, fifteen dollars, they are pushed further uh, into poverty and deprived of that five dollars, fifteen dollars, or twenty dollars. So the opportunity cost for them becomes very, very high. So in ideal scenario, which corporate actors should also pay particular attention to, and our contract negotiators is to see the extent to which if we move communities from uh, position A to position B and allow this investment in, from a broad-based perspective, how much is it growing household economies, for instance? How much is it allowing communities to, to, to still attain their day-to-day -day livelihood targets, but also grow positively? But we haven't seen much of that. What we have seen is a scenario where uh, the few with access to these deals, they, they make a huge killing. I, I would speak to lithium later on or critical minerals that 
it's creating more winners on the side of corporate directors and government uh, elites and losers on the part of communities if not done well in, in terms of ensuring that the benefits are cascaded and are enjoyed uh, equally. Hmm. So you, you've made a, a reference to corporates uh, quite a lot and understandably because they are a, a critical link if you wish, in what I see as a triangle of relationships. But I wonder whether uh, we shoot ourselves in the foot, Farai, when we look to corporates to solve uh, regulatory oversight mm. issues. I, I wonder mm. whether the, the, the starting point really must be to hold governments to account so that they hold corporates and any other person for that matter that may well not give regard to the interests of communities. Is, is the emphasis right? You're so right, Sheila, that I think emphasis should not be only on corporate actors. Emphasis should also be on ourselves as negotiators and as people who are the custodians of these resources. So I'm going to, 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 to elaborate more on that, that I think from an ethical point of view, and I think the corporate sector is awakening to their ethical and moral obligations when they invest. But I think we need to do more on the part of the contract negotiators and the principals who negotiate with capital to ensure that there is investment. Surely we need corporate sectors, but I think our weakest link for, for, for African countries is the negotiators, they are not looking for public interest. In more, more scenarios, we are seeing that they are looking for profiteering interest going into individual pockets, which is why I'm talking about negotiation and contract disclosure, which is why I'm talking about building capacities of the policymakers, but also communities to hold government accountable for what they are signing off to. Uh, th that would be my response. So I think the, 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 the demand for accountability goes on the three, uh, three entities, like you said, it's a triangle approach, onto communities, onto government, and onto uh, the corporate sectors. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm mindful uh, that as we, if we succeed with transition to clean energy and other uh, sources of energy, countries will require quite a lot of land to accommodate windmills and solar farms. Therefore, in a space in which the land is already in short supply, how do we avoid that uh, people are displaced and that that trade-off is not balanced? Because you know we are now going to need land for not just mining; we are now going to need land for uh, the, the the solar panels and and the windmills. So there's a lot of pressure there. I envision. You're so right. And I think we, we are learning from experiences in Kenya. We are learning from experiences in Mexico around uh, what the transition might trigger in terms of land grabs, in terms of environmental violations that comes as a result of the transition. So what do we need to, to do? So for, for many African countries, I would realize and notice that the, the, the dialogue on transition has been centered on uh, the ministries of finance and the ministries of mining with limited involvement of other critical ministries like your land uh, ministry or your agricultural ministry. So I think there's need for integrated approach and integrated rethinking 
to to realize that there's fundamental shift and change not only onto uh, the manner in which we are going to collect taxes but the manner in which we are going to relate with land and our communities relate with land so once there is that fundamental understanding uh, from a state's perspective on integrated planning, integrated approach, I think governments then can find uh, a balance to ensure that communities, much as we might want to move them, how can they be part of this emerging value chain so that development will still continue, but is development that is a human face that does not trigger as much human rights and environmental violations. The, the, the second point, uh, Sheila, is so true that we are going to displace people, but we also have land that is not being used. And this land could be very ideal uh, for, 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 for both harvesting solar radiation and coexistence with wildlife. Can that be an option? So that I think we, we, we tap into much of this land that Zimbabwe might have, Botswana might have, and South Africa and many of the African countries could also have. But then I think the priority for most of our people, as we talk about transition, is access to electricity, for instance, where many, they are being deprived of uh, that basic uh, energy right. So can we then make sure that the trade-off, we ensure that they access what is a priority for, for, for them? And I think they will be willing then to take uh, the, the cost of the transition. So my response to that question is highly integrated approach which involves government or government ministries, but also community-centered for people to realize the benefits that comes along with transitioning. It's time, I think, Sheila, that is very clearly evident that the move towards the green economy should respect human rights through free, prior, informed consent. And the discussion for, for, for many other African countries is relegated your traditional institutions, which are very important in countries like Botswana, can we put traditional leaders at the very center of this discourse? Women, their life was dependent on land. Can we put them uh, at the center of this discourse that they benefit from the value chain? Can we talk about reskilling? Where youth and children in Africa, they have critical skills that will feed into this emerging uh, value chain. That, that would be my response, Sheila. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, in Zimbabwe, there has been a long-standing debate on the exploitation of that country's gold uh, resources. And the, the so, general uh, uh, sense is that this is not really benefiting the average person. Now we have uh, graphite and we have lithium, both of them now center stage. How just are the current laws or on critical minerals development from a sovereign and a citizen perspective how how capable are they to overcome the pitfalls that we experience with respect to gold exploration uh, up to this point? Thanks for that. And it, it's a very difficult question, not for me, but for policymakers in Africa that at a more global level, you have a huge fundamental shift and your laws should also transit in a way but what clearly remains very important is the public interest. So most of our governments, and in the Zimbabwean context, it's more reactionary. Uh, we didn't have forward thinking to realize that 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, 
there'll be these fundamental changes and we need to look at our laws from a human rights perspective ensure that communities and citizens they derive as much value from from this change so you you would then see that much as we are changing laws to ensure that we are not exporting much of raw and unprocessed lithium as it were i think with si si5 of 2023 there's limited discourse around this killing to ensure that students which we are producing from academic institutions they are not having degrees that won't derive them value once they go into the mainstream we are not having discussion on promoting uh business in critical uh critical sectors like your renewable sector those entrepreneurs in solar for instance those entrepreneurs investing more uh, in wind turbines our laws and our policies are more silent on that it's more on raising taxi uh, opportunities as opposed to then taking people with you and ensure that they benefit from these fundamental changes so i think we need to take a step back but the, de the danger and the challenge is that the transition is not stopping and it's the gap time for us to benefit is very very short the more we talk about it we are told that lithium has been discovered in zambia Lithium has been discovered in Mali, in Mali. So you, you automatically know what it means in terms of pricing. So we have a short window to, to benefit. And the challenge now is that of corruption. If windfalls are coming in, our revenues coming in, but communities might not see uh, what the impact of lithium extraction has been from a more positive perspective. What they will see at the end of the day is pits uh, and uh, land degradation, uh, water streams that are polluted. So I think governments need to rethink into, in terms of this money that is coming from this transition. How can it be an enabler for a diversified economy where uh, all communities, they can tap in and benefit? And more importantly, how can we move towards building a labor that is skilled enough to still survive in a transiting economy, Sheila? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, do you see then that energy transition per se is a human rights uh, issue uh, because on one hand it you know through mining and uh, wind uh, farms and so forth we we need and this land and therefore displace people uh, but at the same time after displacing them um, you know there's an element of state capture I, it mm -hmm. starts to move beyond extractives to near human rights issues and maybe even a failure of duty of care on the part of the custodians of these minerals. Thanks so much, Sheila. So, so there are three resources that by nature and divine way of making, they are sacrosanct and we rely on them as humans. That is your land, water and air. You cannot live without these three resources and the transition is which implications in terms of how we interact as human beings with land with water and with air as it were so the transition is fundamentally a human rights issue which is why i think we are talking about esg and respect of human rights so, so for me i think the key question then is how is the transition going to alter people's relationship with land where they've had for many years a relationship with land and how do we ensure that we still respect their right to 
live in a healthy environment where the, e, the air, for instance, is free from pollution, where there is respect for private property rights, and where they are ensured and guaranteed that they can still access clean water for their livelihoods and for, 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 for economic reasons and health reasons. That, 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 that is the starting point. Then we broaden the framework as we, as we go forward. So fundamentally, my response to your question then is the energy transition uh, is a human rights issue. It's going to alter how we relate to land, water, and uh, air, clean air in Africa and in many, in many communities. The scenario that we're seeing in DRS with cobalt, cobalt extraction, I think it shows that the violation of those three fundamental rights, water is being polluted, land, there's massive land degradation. So I think we need to, to, to rethink, which is what I'm saying. Our nation states, African nation states, they are lagging behind. The, the, the transition is more global, but it's going, going local as well. It, it has massive implication on supply, supply nations like DRC, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and many other African countries. Mm. So I, I think there you acknowledge the interface between finite resources, which are the minerals, and, and mm. the fact that they are by nature really consumed by industry in mm. contrast to the non-renewables, which are land, water, forestry, air, that really sustain life form, uh, including humans. And, and I think it is in this space that the risk of uh, offending human rights uh, as when viewed from the perspective of the right to be able to make a living, the right to be able to have shelter. And I, I mm. think it is here that it becomes quite difficult. I mean, let me uh, ask you a last uh, brief question. So if we agree that there's a potential risk uh, for injustice in the transition by not uh, giving due regard for this risk, uh, the social risk and the human rights risk, how can transparency uh, help us overcome that challenge? Thanks, Sheila, for that. So as I had shared earlier on, that transparency is not the end in itself. It's the means to, to an end. On the basis of that understanding, it gives us an opportunity as think tank organizations Something speaking for the African Institute for Environmental Law and many other actors along the value chain to build capacities of communities to hold leaders accountable, to demand for disclosure of information. Because transparency can be offered or you can demand for it. We are in an age for demanding corporate accountability and executive accountability. But often at times we see that governments are not willing to share and disclose information. But beyond that, Sheila, I think there's also information that is there. I'll speak from a Zimbabwean perspective, also Afro perspective, that citizens and CSOs, we might fail to capitalize information that exists in combined annual reports, for instance, in disclosure requirements for stock exchange under be it the job stock exchange, Victoria Falls stock exchange. So there is that information. So what we need and what I've seen Zella doing over time is a process of data extraction in building community capacity to comprehend that data. It's one thing to demand for transparency. It's another thing to ensure that the transparency that is there is comprehensible and communities can make use of information that has been disclosed to hold leaders accountable and find solutions to their problems. So 
transparency, as I said, should be perceived and viewed as a vehicle of change. It's it's a means to an end. The end that we want is to ensure that we have positive development out, outcomes that are highly sustainable, Sheila. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Farai, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Sheila.